Hello and welcome to the Earthkeepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind. People who believe that earth care must be integrated into every aspect of life. And for many in the Earthkeepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. My name is Forrest Inslee, and today I'll be talking to author and gardener Christine Aroni-Sign. Christine promotes a way of being in creation that encourages us to see the signs of God all around us. In nature, she says, and in the garden especially, we discern truth, discover inspiration, and find healing. In her writing and teaching, Christine also helps us to understand how gardens promote community and even engagement with social and environmental justice. And I've just loved to watch the way that community gardens can bring together people not just across generations, but across race and across social strata as well. People wear their oldest clothes out in the garden. So you don't know whether someone's poor or they're wealthy. So there's a great equality in the garden. We learn together, we share together. And what I love particularly is that then we can take the produce from the garden and have lunch together because we're sharing in another beautiful way that is in many ways like taking communion together. We're sharing of the, the produce of the garden in a way that I think was probably a little more like that first communion experience that the early Christians had as well. Welcome, friends, to the Earthkeepers podcast. Christine, I wonder if you could tell me uh, about some of the experiences uh, and impacts that have shaped your understanding of creation, people, places, things that have happened. A number of things, obviously. I think probably the first big impact in my life was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, you know, way back in the 70s. I, I still remember the impact of that book. And I think it was the sobering wake up call for me at least, that we needed to be better carers of creation. And, and at that point in time, I don't think that I really had any theology that helped me to understand that. More recently, Wendell Berry, and particularly uh, Norman Wurzbach, I think he was the one that has more than anything shaped my theology as far as creation is concerned. Just tremendous influences. But Probably the greatest influence of all, you know, I grew up in Australia. I never really had much of an understanding of the relationship between creation and our faith until I came to the Northern Hemisphere. And the first uh, spring that I spent in the Northern Hemisphere, the erupting of daffodils and tulips and this incredible resurrection, as it were, of life it was kind of like, and, and it coincided with Easter. And I think for the first time for me, it was like, oh, this is what, <laughs> this is what faith is all about. You know, it is, I, I might read about it in the Bible, but I really do see it lived out in the creation. And so that incredible connection was formed at that point in time. And I think has just grown since then. And out of that has grown a tremendous love of creation in every different dimension. I, I started to get into gardening as a result of that kind of revelation. 
and and that has further inspired me in terms of the connections between creation and faith, and and it just continues to grow. It gives me joy. It gives me cre- sense of connection and intimacy with God, and and just yeah, it's transformed my life in so many different ways. You bring up a very interesting point uh, about locatedness and culture in terms of how we look at the created environment. I'm wondering if you were to look at a more Australian sensibility, would you describe it as fundamentally different? Well, that's a good point. I often think that people that live in the Southern Hemisphere need to reinvent the liturgical calendar to fit in (laughs) with the seasons that they have all around them. Because, you know, it is very hard in many ways to connect to the feeling of, of the meaning of Easter when everything around you is dying, you know, because, of course, it's autumn. It's going into winter there. There are other things, too, I think, that can probably help us to connect to a certain kind of sense of, of the death and resurrection that there is. I mean, at the moment in Australia, there are horrendous bushfires raging just everywhere. You know, one of the things that I grew up with that was part of the rhythm of my life was a rhythm of death and resurrection in terms of the bush. And I think that that can provide imagery in a different kind of way than the seasons of the year. I mean, it is a kind of a a form of seasons, but a different kind of seasons, but certainly something that can help us to uh, reconnect to the kind of the sense of the death and the resurrection that is inspired by creation. And I think everybody in Australia at the moment is hoping for resurrection because it is just horrible down there. It is, it, it is just almost un- unbelievable what's going on down there at the moment. So I wonder if you could say more about your relationship to the natural environment and how that relationship is reflected in the way you live your everyday life. Well, I think that I have a growing conviction that we are called to be stewards of creation, that part of what our responsibility as human beings is, is to look after the creation, is to preserve it and to help renew it in whatever ways we can. For me, I suppose that's been lived out in my love of gardening, my constantly wanting to plant more plants. The trouble is that there doesn't seem to be any more room in my garden or in my house for the extra plants that I would like to grow. (laughs) But there is that sense, I think, of um, the need to be stewards. And um, yeah, I see that in other ways too. It's not just that we need to be planting and that we need to be growing, but I think that we need to be thinking responsibly about how we use the resources of our earth as well. And one of the tensions in my life is that because my family is half a world away in Australia and I like to go and visit them, and because part of my ministry involves flying, I am constantly using resources in a way that um, I don't always think of as being responsible. And so part of what I need to look at is how can I offset that? And of course, one of the ways that I can offset that is with carbon offsets. (laughs) I can also do it through planting trees and through trying to cut back in other ways as much as possible. I mean, when I can, I like to go go by train rather than flying, which is a little bit better. And I do like to cut back as much as I can. But But I think for most of us, there is this constant tension about how can we be responsible stewards and still 
really, I suppose, function properly in this world in which we live. And to be honest, I haven't really figured out (laughs) all the ways that I need to act to make that possible. But importantly, you're asking the questions and trying to figure that out. Yes, and constantly asking them, uh, constantly thinking, is there something more that I can be doing? As well as doing the carbon offsets, one of the things that I've realized we can do or that we need to think about is, is where our food comes from. We need to think about how many miles it's gone to get to the supermarkets. Uh, one of the things that I try to do, not always as effectively as I'd like, is to buy local produce and locally produced goods. We are a member of our, our local food co-op. We grow a lot of our own garden produce. You know, one of the things that I like to do is to go to the farmer's markets because these are the places that we can get uh, locally produce, local produce. And I think that apart from the carbon offsets, one of the ways that we can cut down on fuel consumption is by buying locally because so much of our goods can come from Mexico, it can come from Europe, it can come from all over the world. And that's a huge amount of fuel that is wasted in that way. And, you know, it might mean that we don't always get the things that we want to, but I think that there can be a real value to eating locally and eating in season as well. It makes us appreciate food a lot more if we don't have it all year, as the supermarkets would encourage us to do either. And that's another way to appreciate the creation, I think, that God has given us. In so much of your writing and teaching, you balance the pragmatic issues like carbon offsetting with deeper, more spiritual issues. And I wanted to turn to your book called To Garden with God, uh, in which you write about the spirituality of gardening. I wonder if you might read one of your garden liturgies from that book uh, and then help us to understand how is gardening spiritual? Thank you for asking me to write to read this. This is one of my favorites, I think. I wrote it a number of years ago and I've quoted it, I think, in several books and I know that others have used it as well. And I think for me, this probably expresses some of the delight that I have in gardening. And I know that it's something that a lot of people use as a dedication for their gardens at the beginning of the year as well. God bless this garden through which your glory shines. May we see in its beauty the wonder of your love. God bless the soil, rich and teeming with life. May we see in its fertility the promise of new creation. God bless our toil as we dig deep to turn the soil. May we see in our labour your call to be good stewards. God bless each seed that takes root and grows. May we see in their flourishing the hope of transformation. God bless the rains that water our efforts to bring forth life. May we see in their constancy God's faithful care. God bless the harvest, abundant and bountiful in season. May we see in God's generosity our need to share. God bless this garden as you bless all creation with your love. May we see in its glory your awesome majesty. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things that I realized as I started to get into the garden regularly was that whereas I read about the story of God in the Bible, in the garden I saw it lived out. 
every time I planted a seed, there was a sense of entering into the story of the death and the resurrection of Christ. Every time I went out and I harvested something from the garden, there was a sense of entering into the presence of a God who wanted to give generously and abundantly to all of God's people and I think to all of God's creation. Every time I I went out and the rains were falling and things were growing, I was aware of the faithfulness of God who provided for us on a regular basis like this. It was just a, a profound experience of all different aspects of the spirituality connection between spirituality and gardening, I suppose that you could say. It was beautiful. And that's just grown over the years. I've started to realize that it's not just as I get out into the garden, but it's every aspect of creation. I mean, a sunset, for example, is a wonderful sense of the spirituality of a God who, in in some ways, I suppose you could say, who's God's faithfulness in uh, every day and every season, which of course, again, is lived out in the garden. And, and so my connection to gardening and my connected connection to creation has just been a wonderful way of experiencing spirituality and God together in the garden. I think you've helped us understand the intimacy that can be part of this idea, this practice of garden spirituality. I'm wondering, are there ways that the spirituality of gardening can also be experienced at a more communal level. Yes. In fact, I think that gardening is something that is at its most enjoyable when it is done in community setting. We live in a small community. Uh, We have family with two little kids, a young couple and a single guy that live in our small community. And we do a garden day once a month. And part of what I love is watching the dynamics of interaction between the different generations. Firstly, it's a wonderful learning experience for all of us. Uh, And what I've realized is it's not always the old people that are teaching the young people. It's often the other way around. In fact, the little kids and their delight in the garden is often something that can be a real learning experience, I think, for all of us. It's a wonderful place to have conversations about everything. You know, this is the place where I think that conversations about life really come out in their their best form. And in a broader community, I've, I've had a chance to work with people in community gardens as well. And I've just loved to watch the way that community gardens can bring together people, not just across generations, but across race and across social strata as well. You know, so often people wear their oldest clothes out in the garden. So you don't know whether someone's poor or they're wealthy. So there's a great equality in the garden, I think. And also often those that are marginalised in other ways are the ones that have the greatest knowledge when it comes to the garden or they have the greatest skills when it comes to the garden as well. And so we learn together, we share together And what I love particularly is that then we can take the produce from the garden and have lunch together because we're sharing in another beautiful way that is in many ways like taking communion together because we're sharing in a way of the bread, maybe not the wine, but certainly we're sharing of the the produce of the garden in a way that I think was probably a little more like that first 
communion experience that the early Christians had as well. You know, there's there's nothing more enriching to me than community in the garden. I really resonate with this idea of connectivity that gardens produce. And it reminds me of a story that just happened to me yesterday, actually. I was making pasta sauce and used up the last of my dried oregano, which I had actually received as a gift from a neighbor who is a couple of houses away and several fences away. We rarely interact, in fact, except over all things garden. And so I felt compelled, inspired to text her and say, you know, I just used the last of the oregano that you gave me and you came to mind. And I just wanted to say thank you again. Uh, she texted back right away and said, clearly you need more oregano. So <laughs> come over and get some because I've got quite a bit. And I realized that in the freezer, I had quite a bit of Thai basil that I had grown uh, in the summertime. So I filled up a jar of that uh, for her. And we had a very nice visit talking about the garden and talking about missing the garden since it's the dead of winter now. I even found myself telling her stories of growing bay leaves uh, in my garden in Istanbul at one time. <laughs> so all kinds of, of uh, conversational connections came up simply because she had given me that oregano and we had shared from the bounty, really, of our garden. Isn't that beautiful? I think that gardening uh, gardens help us share in so many ways. I mean, firstly, usually when the harvest comes in, it is so abundant that we have to share it. You know, there are two possibilities. We share it or it goes bad. You know, it's meant to be shared. In, in fact, one of the things I noticed in the recession was that people who turned to the garden, you know, they had a different attitude towards the recession. Instead of feeling that they didn't have enough and they needed to hold on to everything that they had, they had this kind of feeling that there wasn't just enough, but there was more than enough and that they really did have the opportunity to share. It was just a phenomenal thing that I watched happening in people as they got their hands in the garden and as they produced and that they had to share. But secondly, you mentioned your neighbor. I mean, I have definitely established relationships with several of my neighbors because of gardening, you know, sharing produce, uh, sharing plants, all different ways. And, and, and it's a beautiful way to reach out to our communities, our neighborhoods as well, I think. I'm Forrest Dinsley, and this is the Earth Keepers Podcast. One of the core values of the Earth Keepers Podcast and the Circlewood community of which it is a part is the belief that God can be perceived in nature. However, it isn't always easy to pay attention to the God presence around us. We get so easily caught up in the rush of daily life. We face the constant distractions of demanding schedules, consuming workloads, and the needs of others who depend on us. In her most recent book, The Gift of Wonder, Creative Practices for Delighting in God, Christine Aroni-Sign offers practical, spiritual exercises that help us redirect our hearts and minds to God. As part of this reorientation, she gently teaches her readers how we can, using all of our senses, pay attention to the deep presence of the divine in creation. I want to turn to your most recent book, The Gift of Wonder, particularly to something that you call Lectio Tierra, which I find to be an intriguing concept. And I'm wondering 
If you could honor us by reading a passage from that book to help us understand what this practice, Lectio Tierra, actually looks like or could look like in our everyday lives. Well, let me say, first of all, that I wasn't the one that coined the term Lectio Tierra, though, to be honest, I think I'd been practicing this for many years before I actually knew what to call it. And this is a practice related to Lectio Tierra, which, of course, is a contemplative way of looking at the scriptures. And this is applying the same kind of process to going out into nature. So let me read the passage. Like Lectio Divina, Lectio Tierra begins with reading. I head into God's good creation and with the deliberate intention of reading where God is present and what God is saying. What might God use to catch my eye and draw me closer is a good beginning question. Anything that catches my attention provides fuel for reflection. I can discern its story, discover the intersections of that story with my own story and sit in harmony with it. My eyes might be drawn to an old oak tree, a leaf falling from the tree or the sound of water trickling down a hillside. I stop, look and listen not forcing a revelation, but waiting in the silence for God to nudge me in a definite direction. What story do I discern? How might it speak to me of God? Now I meditate. I gasp in awe at the pattern of bark interweaving like Celtic braiding. My eyes are drawn to the blackened scars that speak of fire damage. The tree has survived in spite of its traumatic past and in some ways is stronger and more full of life as a result. The fire burnt off undergrowth that prevented nourishment from reaching the roots. The nearby stream forced its roots to grow deeper and draw from the hidden wellsprings of life beneath the surface. Psalm 1 comes to me. You are like a tree planted by flowing cool streams of water that never run dry. I pray touching the scars and smelling the fragrance of the leaves. I reflect on the blackened scars of my own life that are still present. They too have contributed to the strength and resilience of who I am becoming. I thank God for the deep roots that continue to grow into the water that will never run dry. I ask for insight into other scars that are still weeping and need to be sealed. I pray for God's peace and guidance that I may continue to grow tall and strong in God's garden world. The last step is contemplation. I pause, running my hands along the braided pattern on the trunk, feeling the roughness of the bark beneath my fingers. I observe the other trees in the forest and know I am not alone. I breathe in and absorb the insights God has given, enabling me to move into a place of peace. I can grow strong and tall in spite of my scars and past traumas. I can receive love, healing and grace from God and continue to grow into the person God intends me to be. I feel at one with God's world and with the people that help move me towards God's wholeness. You have such a way with creating word pictures that are very evocative. Thank you. I find my response, though, to be a bit bittersweet on the one hand, the profundity of the images really creates a sense of peace in me. And yet I hear the words stop, look, and listen. And I realize how little I actually do that. In the busyness of, of my life, in the distractedness, I seldom make time for that. 
and forget to make time for that, even though I value it in principle. What would you say to people like me, like most people, I suppose, who struggle with that? Well, let me say I struggle with that too, because I'm a very busy person. Firstly, I'm reminded of an author I read years ago uh, who said, the fastest pace for noticing is walking. I think, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. Part of the problem is that we move too busily in so many different aspects of our life. So I think one of the things to do is to discipline ourselves to take time to walk every day. And uh, for those of us that have dogs, you know, this is probably a little easier because dogs in a way force us or encourage us to go for a daily walk and is certainly something that helps us to slow down and to take notice. I suppose your next book will be called The Spirituality of Dog Walking. (laughs) That would be a good idea, yes. (laughs) But the second thing that has really helped me and my husband Tom is that when I was working on The Gift of Wonder and doing some research into awe and wonder, one of the things that we decided is that we would call our daily walks with our dog awe and wonder walks. And so we started pointing out to each other the things that gave us a sense of awe and wonder as we walked. And what I I think both of us found was that it slowed us down even more because we did have to stop and take notice of what the other person had pointed out. We did have to slow down and take time to notice ourselves the things that gave us a sense of awe and wonder. And so it was a wonderful practice and something that I would highly recommend. You know, find a friend. I mean, it doesn't have to be daily, friend or a spouse or a family member and take a walk and, you know, an awe and wonder walk and go out and and kind of look at, you know, what gives you a sense of awe and wonder? You know, kind of it's a good discipline to help us take time to notice. And I think that once we start to notice in one area of our lives, we suddenly realize that we're starting to notice in other areas of our lives and to want to slow down in that same way as well. One of the things I've learned from you over the years is about Celtic Christian traditions, because so much of your teaching and writing references ideas and practices from the ancient Celtic Christian traditions. For those who are not familiar uh, with those, perhaps you could tell us who were the Celtic Christians and what was unique about their worldview? Okay, let me start by saying that I was introduced to this by my husband, Tom, who took me to the island Iona, which was one of the sites of the Celtic um, monastic tradition, you know, back in the 5th century. This particularly impacted me because I'd just been working in Africa. And one of the things that I noticed was that a lot of African Christians still adhered to some of the practices of their pre-Christian time because Christianity just didn't answer Uh, the needs that they had in some of the everyday parts of their lives. And what I found was that Celtic Christianity had something to say for every part of life. It really was a form of Christianity that encompassed every part of life. Professor John Macquarie observed that the Celt was very much a God-intoxicated person whose life was embraced on all sides by the divine being, And I think that sums up, you know, what Celtic spirituality is all about. 
And I think, wow, <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody's ever described me or most of my friends as a God intoxicated person. And I think part of the problem is that we don't have a, a form of Christian faith that really impacts every single part of life. And so that was the thing that I think really drew me to Celtic Christian spirituality because they had an intense sense of the presence of God in every part of life. And they had a love of creation as a reflection of the character of God. They believed that creation was translucent and the, the presence of God shines through it. I, I love that sense, you know, not that you worshipped creation, but that you worshipped the God who is revealed in creation. They also believed that all tasks had a sacred significance. So they had prayers for every single mundane aspect of life, everything from lighting the fire uh, to going on a journey, even folding a napkin. I, I found a prayer about folding a napkin. Now, I don't think that dates back to the 5th century, but I love that, that even in folding a napkin, we can find a certain sense of spiritual significance and, and connect to God in the, the pattern of what we're creating. And the last thing that I love is that they believed that hospitality opened a doorway to heaven and that any stranger could be an angel or even Christ in disguise. They were a very hospitable people and constantly welcoming strangers into their midst in a way that um, I think is, is something that we could all learn from. And, and so this movement began in Ireland. I think that many people kind of consider that it really began with Patrick, though it predates the coming of Patrick. It spread from Ireland into Scotland and then into England and actually through all of Europe. And some people believe that Francis of Assisi was influenced by the Celtic, the Irish monks who established a, uh, a chapel not far from Assisi. We've come across Celtic chapels, Irish chapels in, in many different parts of, of Europe. So it was a very evangelistic faith as well and, and, and just has so much to say, I think, for our world today, particularly because of the fact that it, it really does connect to every part of life. I think that's beautiful. So you would think that they would probably have a prayer for dog walking. I am sure that if um, they were here today that they would have a prayer for dog walking. Actually, I think Mary Oliver has a poem for dog walkers. So maybe we can adapt that as a Celtic kind of prayer. In what ways do you think that Celtic theology and practice speaks into the current conversation about how Christians might reimagine their relationship to creation? Well, I think this idea that, that creation is translucent and that God is revealed through every aspect of creation, I think is a very important word for us today. I think it's something that helps us to recognize the presence of God in everything around us. I think that they also believed in the stewardship of creation. I think that's another way in which it's very important for us to connect to creation in the way that the Celts did. For people in the Circlewood community, I think many of us struggle sometimes with, with feeling a sense of hope for the future, especially when we look at the trajectory of the world and where we seem to be going in terms of, of environmental damage and climate change. I'm wondering if you could share with us where, what are some of the ways that you hold on to hope in the face of a potential despair? Well, I think you're right. It's, it's not easy today. 
I mean, I've just come from Australia where, you know, people are describing the bushfires there as apocalyptic. You know, they are just so extensive that it, it is horrific. And it's not, of course, the only part of the world in which we're seeing horrific changes that I think it's easy for all of us to give way to despair. Part of what I found to start with is that I need to look for the glimpses of hope, for the things that I can see happening, the good news things that are happening. The fact that India has planted a billion trees over the last few, I think, couple of years. I mean, that, that's a real ray of hope in the midst of despair the countries that are going green in ways that, yeah, there's to speak of the fact that change is possible. The, the, you know, the cities that are going green, I think here in Seattle, you know, we're seeing more and more ways that people are aware of the need to change and are wanting to go green. And, and, and so those are the rays of hope. And I find myself wanting to focus on those rather than looking for the negative things that are happening around us. I also find help, hope, I think, in this season, just, just from the, the gospel story, you know, of, of death and resurrection, you know, the fact that out of death comes resurrection, and then knowing that, in a way, death is not the end, <laughs> you know, I think is a ray of hope as well. Now, none of us want to die, and I'm not wanting to be morbid in the midst of that, but there can be hope, particularly, I mean, I look at the forests, and of course, forests, to a certain extent, need fires for new growth to come up. So that is a sense of hope, you know, not that we want the extent of the fires that's happening in places at the moment, but even in the midst of a fire, there can be a sense of hope because of the new growth that it stimulates at the same time. So one of the ways that I find hope uh, in the face of, of possible despair is to find ways to act, to find things that I can do as acts of resistance, really, to what I perceive as, as the degradation of the environment. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners just one practical, actionable step that we could take that you recommend to us to really find hope and to practice hope. I, I agree with you. I think that so often it is hard to, to find that hope and that get out and to do things is something that can really make a difference. Actually, I was thinking of two things as you spoke. Firstly, get out and plant a tree. <laughs> I think that's in many ways the biggest sign of hope that, that we can have. I mean, to a certain extent, it's saying because a tree takes a long time to mature, part of what it's saying is things are going to be around long enough for this tree to mature. So there is a real sense of hope in that. The other thing I would say is join your local food co-op you know, or, or just go to the local farmer's market because these are some of the actionable things that we can do that reduce our carbon footprint. They don't sound like much. You, you know, if we can do it and encourage somebody else to do it as well, then we can make a difference. And, and I think it's amazing what a difference we can make. So how can our listeners connect with you and the work that you're doing? Well, two ways. Firstly, through my blog, godspacelight.com. I don't post always about creation care, but I certainly post a lot about spirituality and, and various aspects of that. Also through Facebook. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, I suppose, but probably most active on Facebook. And I do have one specific 
page that is dedicated to things. Uh, I call it to garden with God because it's about spirituality and gardening. They can also connect through the books that I've written. You've mentioned probably the two that are the most pertinent in terms of this, To Garden with God and The Gift of Wonder. I also produce prayer cards. I have a set of Celtic prayer cards that is one of the ways that I've expressed, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about today. And that's another way that people can connect. I, I put a lot of the prayers up on the blog. And I think that people often find that these are useful ways to get the head knowledge that they have into their hearts as well. And so that's part of what I like to do. And and these are the ways that people can connect to me. That's wonderful. And of course, we'll post uh, links to all of these things in the show notes for those who want to follow up on those points of connection with you. Thank you. Thank you for your optimism, for your refreshing perspective, for your new point of view, I think, that stretches us to see both ways of of engaging change, but also ways of being different uh, in relation to to creation. I appreciate your wisdom. Thank you, Faris. We've been talking with Christine Neroni Sign, author of several books, including To Garden with God and The Gift of Wonder. If you would like to know more about her life and work, you'll find helpful links and resources in this episode's notes section. In future episodes, Earthkeepers will explore ways in which we can change ourselves, our churches, our communities, and our cultures to help us care for the Earth in holistic and regenerative ways. We invite you to support us by subscribing to this podcast and also leaving a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. And finally, please share the Earthkeepers podcast with anyone you know who understands that caring for the Earth is an expression of faith. When ecological Christians stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. Earthkeepers Podcast is an expression of Circlewood, an organization whose purpose it is to cultivate transformative communities that love and care for all creation. If you'd like to learn more about the Circlewood community or the Earthkeepers Podcast, please visit our website at www.circlewood.online or write to us at podcast.circlewood.online. I'm Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Forrest Reed is our sound engineer and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast. Keepers podcast.